Hey, hey y'all. Welcome to NOLA Hearts, a podcast to raise awareness about congenital heart defects and discuss resources about CHD and some other stuff. We're just two heart mamas from New Orleans doing this for heart mamas. We're dads, grandmas, aunts, friends, whoever may want to listen. That's Susan Oakland. And that's Lana Stevens. And we feel like we've got a lot to say. We have so much to say that we're stumbling over our words today. <laughs> Whatever. Y'all, it's been a crazy morning. Um, we are in March already. Thank you, Sue, for my it's birthday crazy. party you gave me three days ago. <laughs> Just kidding. That didn't happen. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on top uh, of it. Anyway, um, yeah, we're in March. We got through February Heart Month. It was a beautiful month. Um, got through Mardi Gras. Fabulous. And now we're here in the spring and all the fun things like crawfish balls and strawberries. We'll be probably doing and the heart gala. And the heart gala's coming up and... Very soon, and very many things happening. Um, so, here we are. Gosh, this year's flying by. First quarter already. <sighs> it's been a rough first quarter. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm anxious to move on to the next. I know. I hear you. I hear you. Um, so, today, we are having a very interesting... We're having two guests. Um, two physicians from Ashner, And they are going to talk to us about um, congenital heart defects and pregnancy. Dr. Thomas Young and Dr. Jennifer Durst who both work um, through Ashner Hospital for Children in New Orleans. Um, but this is especially especially meaningful to me, obviously, because I have a daughter, um, and I've had a few um, heart moms reach out to me with concerns and asking questions about if their daughter will be able to have kids one day since they're a congenital heart defect patient. And so when you think about having this little baby girl, you don't think that far ahead, but the reality is real, and it's coming soon, so... Um, it's going to be great to hear what they have to say. Um, one is a cardiologist and one is a, um, uh, maternal fetal medicine, um, obstetrician. So we're going to get both sets of information from them. So we're excited to get this interview started since there's two of them. Let's go ahead and introduce Dr. Young and Dr. Durst. Welcome to Dr. Thomas Young and Dr. Jennifer Durst, both who are physicians at Ashner Hospital. Welcome. Thank y'all for joining us today. Thank you for having us. us. Tell us each a little about yourself, your training. I mean, we have had Dr. Young before, but for people who unfortunately may not have listened, you could still give us a little recap about you and where you're from and your training and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm, um, I'm, Born and raised in Virginia, um, went to college um, at University of Richmond, go Spiders, um, and then medical school, residency, and fellowship um, at what was at the time called Medical College Virginia, but I'm old enough that my med school has changed names and is now Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, I did a uh, combined internal medicine pediatrics residency, which people call a med-peds residency, which at the time was relatively novel, but now is quite common. Um, so I came out board certified uh, certified in internal medicine and pediatrics, and then did a Pete's cardiology fellowship. Um, first job out was in Augusta, Georgia, which we loved, but I uh, married a girl from New Orleans, and this is what happens. So well, I've, been, all come back. I've been at Oshner since August of 05. Great timing, by the way. Start oh, yeah, Wait, I just I thought about it. Great timing. Oh my. Yeah. Well, great timing for us because Harley was born October of twenty of two thousand five. So it was like Absolutely. he came and and knew that he had somebody special to take care of. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Doctor Durst, would you like to tell us a little bit about you and your background? 
Sure. Um, I grew up in Alabama, left to go to college in North Carolina at Duke, and then came back to Alabama for medical school and residency training in OBGYN at UAB. And I think they have also changed the name of my medical school, but I'm not familiar <laughs> with it. <laughs> with the um, new one. And then I went to St. Louis um, at Washington University in St. Louis for my maternal fetal fellowship and then took a job here in 2017. So I've been in New Orleans at Oshner for going on my fifth year. Okay. And so what, um, tell me what you're, you know, we've interviewed, not to, we're not trying to downplay Dr. Young right now, because I know that we've I'm talked okay with, with, with him. He he agreed to come on here to discuss this, but only if you were going to be on here with him. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about kind of like what you do, um, you know, in, in your everyday and in its relation to CHD patients, possibly. Absolutely. So um, my job, I feel like, has kind of three components. One component is inpatient care of um, hospitalized women for medical complications of pregnancy and their delivery. Um, We do outpatient consultations where we see people with maternal or fetal um, reasons that they need to see a high-risk specialist. And then, you know, we do a lot of ultrasound where we're doing prenatal diagnosis for people who have increased risks of certain fetal abnormalities. And um, in terms of CHD, um, I would say that most women who are adult congenital heart patients are going to come see us at some point in their pregnancy. And the reason for that is, um, you know, they're... OB physician needs a little bit of guidance in terms of what kind of management they will need in terms of their pregnancy care and also really their delivery and postpartum care. And so, you know, there are a few congenital heart lesions that probably don't come to our office, but I would say the majority of adult congenital patients are going to come to us. And really all are, are going to see, you know, us from a fetal imaging standpoint, because we have to look at the, the baby in greater detail. And so, I'm going to, um, I want to yeah. say one thing, what I want to happen is for them, to, for Dr. Durst to see the patient before they get pregnant. Okay. Um, okay. They really do a, a wonderful job with counseling in regards to pregnancy and, and risk associated with pregnancy. So our goal here is definitely to to have that preconception visit instead of it being an emergency right. once we're already pregnant kind of visit. Well, that's, I was going to ask that at some point too. Is this something that as you take over, um, you know, adult congenital patients, Dr. Young, do you obviously have these conversations with women or, or maybe men too? That's another question, I guess, um, about family planning and like the, how the planning part is, is important um, as far as the pre-care? Absolutely. I, you know, I think we all have gotten much, much better about this um, in that I, I try to start having these conversations, you know, when, when the patients are in their teens. I'm um, there. I'm there, Dr. Young. You're hurting my heart. Um, I, I've heard rumors that, that people can actually get pregnant in their teens. Um, and, and not I ours. Think it, not my baby. No. no. Of course no. not. Well, no, never. We're not um, grandma material yet. <laughs> You'll be a wonderful grandmother 10 years from now. 10, maybe 20. <laughs> 20, okay, yeah, okay. long time. So, um, yeah, we, we really try to start having these conversations early, um, especially in regards to 
contraception. Um, and, and also, I think it's important because people get a lot of different advice and information from different sources to, to have this conversation about, well, you know, you should or you shouldn't have children as you get older. I would expect you to do well. I wouldn't expect you to do well. Here's why it's important to um, here's why it's important to follow up regularly so we can make sure that we take care of problems before you get pregnant, which is really important. There are a number of medicines, um, most specifically things like um, the ACE inhibitors like lisinopril and captopril. Um, and the angiotensin receptor blockers like mm -hmm. Losartan and Valsartan that are really bad for developing babies. Um, and so we, we really want the patients off those medications, preferably before they get pregnant, or certainly as soon as they find out they're pregnant. Um, and so those are conversations we really need to have in the young teens, um, because we don't want to get that phone call from a 16-year-old that they're pregnant. And they're, you know, 12 weeks pregnant and they've been on a medicine the entire, you know, for the start of that, that could potentially cause a lot of harm to the baby. Um, but also, I think it's a, you know, it's always a little uncomfortable to have that first conversation with the patient and mom or dad often is sitting there and, and they're kind of shocked and nervous as I was with my kids the first time someone even brought up the kind of sex drugs and rock and roll talk with, um, with my kids. Um, but it's, it really is just a wonderful thing that we're having those conversations. If we turn the clock back, you know, 50 years, um, no one expected to have to worry about our patients getting pregnant. It was just a question of were they going to live to be one year old or five years old. And now the vast majority of these patients, even the patients with really complex congenital heart disease, are going to live into adulthood. And the vast majority of those patients can get pregnant. Now, I think it's a different question whether they should get pregnant, Okay. but the infertility rates are really low in our patients. So I, I, we need to have those discussions. I used to, I've had patients who have been pregnant and uh, they say, well, doctor, you know, my doctor told me um, I can't get pregnant. And I think what the doctor was saying was whatever you do, you shouldn't get pregnant. And what they heard was you can't get pregnant and thought they were safe. And mm -hmm. that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So I, I know we're talking mostly about women and the medicines, but um, since I have a son who currently isn't on medicine, but that might not always be the case, is there something that male patients could be taking that could cause any kind of issues? Or infertility? Or infertility, you know, like could the medicine, should he get his hopefully wife pregnant, um, that it could cause defects to the baby or any kind of issues with the pregnancy? Or is that just genetics in general to be mindful of? And Jen, if you want to take that one, go for it. Yeah. So I would say, you know, probably not in terms of a medication. There are some medications that I can't really see being used in the congenital heart population where we would recommend, you know, men not conceive for a period of time. The issue really, um, as it comes down to male partners with congenital heart disease would be the genetics aspect of the congenital heart disease. So if they have a congenital heart disease that, you know, has an autosomal dominant transmission rate, you know, 50% of their children may have congenital heart disease or that condition. So for male patients, really what we're looking at is, is genetics and making sure they've met with a genetic counselor before pursuing pregnancy. Okay. Wow. So Dr. Young, you mentioned like 
uh, and when you said this, it automatically, you're going to think I'm silly. It automatically reminded me of Steel Magnolias when they told Shelby that he didn't say you couldn't get pregnant. He said you couldn't right. get pregnant. And so I think that's important to point out is, are there any defects or any specific, um, you know, patient profiles that you would say that you wouldn't recommend a patient to get pregnant? Not that they can't, but it's not the, in their best interest. There are a few. Yeah. I, I think, um, the big ones, patients with pulmonary hypertension, so moms who have high pressure in the lungs, um, that that is a really high-risk pregnancy. Um, mothers who have significant dysfunction of the, of the pumping chamber to their body. So most of us, that's a left ventricle. And, and we often talk about ejection fraction, so how much that left ventricle squeezes every time it pumps. And if the, certainly if the ejection fraction is, is 30 or less, that's a really high risk group and kind of in the 30 to 40 range, we worry some. Um, a lot of our patients don't have left ventricles pumping blood to the body. And so it's a, a right ventricle instead of a left, or maybe it's a, a big single ventricle and kind of moderate to severe dysfunction of that ventricle would be considered pretty high risk. Our patients who are already blue. So this is fairly rare nowadays. I think if we turn the clock back 20, 30 years, when a lot of our patients didn't get corrected, um, we did have a lot of adults who still had really low oxygen levels. Um, but but patients do, their oxygen levels tend to drop even more. If they start off with low oxygen levels during the pregnancy, they drop more and, and that's relatively high risk. Um, and then the other one are the, the patients with enlarged aortas. And the big one being the Marfan syndrome patients, um, if if their aorta is is greater than a certain size, um, that risk of of having problems with the aorta during the pregnancy goes up. Um, it's not just the Marfans; it's, it's some of our Turner syndrome patients who can oh. carry pregnancies. Um, some of the uh, bicuspid aortic valve patients who have significant enlargement of the aorta. That's not as much of a risk as the Marfans patients. Um, but it still is something where that specific group, that group with the enlarged aortas, quite often we can um, we can intervene and do a surgery before. So here's where that preconception evaluation is really important. So mm -hmm. maybe that person mm -hmm. should have a surgery and have their that part of their aorta replaced, and then they'll be able to tolerate a pregnancy much better. Um, the Patients with really severe obstruction of valves, so severe aortic stenosis, severe mitral stenosis, some of these kind of defects are very high risk. Um, we definitely deal with mechanical valves quite a bit with our pregnant moms, and, and there are things you can do to get through that, but I would say that a, a mom who is on Coumadin or Warfarin because they have a mechanical valve in place, that's certainly a higher risk. Now, I wouldn't say you shouldn't get, you know, absolutely not, you can't get pregnant, but there's a lot of discussion here. Yeah. And, um, and so there are a few kind of big ones. So the pulmonary hypertension one in particular, or the severe dysfunction of the ventricle, where I've had several patients show up pregnant in that situation, and it's really scary. Yeah, um, and yeah. that's when that's one where you have to have really difficult discussions about what the best options are for the mom, um, because the risk to the mom is really, really high. Um, but then there are these other ones that, you know, we can probably get you through OK, but but it's risky and we have to have good discussions. And I think the other part of this discussion that is really hard sometimes is the, the question of, OK, well, 
can we get you through a pregnancy? Probably. But with your heart disease, what's the likelihood that you'll be alive and doing well 10 years from now or 15 years from now? And and those kind of hard discussions where not just with the mom, but also with the dad and the rest of the family about, you know, I've got worries that maybe you're going to have a lot of issues coming up and, and are you going to be able to, you know, feel well, like you're being a good mom. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. So these are, these are tough decisions, but there are, like I said, they're kind of three or four real no-goes and, and I'll let Dr. Durst jump in if there's something I forgot or if she has. So what I'm not story. hearing is tetralogy of Philo just asking for a friend. If that I'm going to have a friend, maybe one day possibly. I have a question on that too. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much that the egg or sperm are affected as far as getting pregnant. It's more the mom's body being able to carry the baby and her health affected by the pregnancy, correct? Yeah, I think there are two sides to that. They're, they're definitely, I mean, I think what we tend to worry first about is the mom and the mom's ability to tolerate that pregnancy, but there's definite risk to baby as well. And and with a lot of these defects, there's an increased miscarriage risk, an increased risk of, of the baby being born prematurely. And then with the genetics, there is clearly an increased risk of congenital heart disease in the babies. I never knew that because I felt like it was always random that Henry had a heart defect, but I guess also maybe people weren't surviving as long before to know that you could pass it down to your children. Yeah. The, the genetics is yeah. complicated. Um, I think there's sometimes in some of the disorders, the genetic disorders where we have really clear understanding of the, of the inheritance, you know, the autosomal dominance and those kind of things where we can pretty clearly say, well, your baby has a 50% risk of having something or a 25% risk or whatever. Um, but I, th- I think with a lot of the other defects, um, it, it's a lot harder. I mean, I tend to throw out that, you know, a little less than one in a hundred kids is born with a heart problem. If mom has a heart issue, it, it's kind of in general, maybe more like one in 20, um, but it varies a lot from defect to defect. Um, and all these patients, you have to kind of evaluate individually. I was going to ask that, are certain defects shown to be more inherited than others? I don't know if y'all would know that. I mean, I think the left side and obstructive lesions are a little bit more common, um, but, you know, the the ones that are 50% inherited risk are things like 22Q11 deletion, Marfan syndrome, things that are, you know, autosomal dominant. And that's not the majority of, you know, of the congenital heart population. It's just important to take it into consideration. Ideally, prior to, you know, conception and prior to reproduction. Um, And I totally agree. I think, you know, a lot of what we're confronted with are, you know, what is the risk that the pregnancy is going to confer to the mom, but also what are those fetal risks that, you know, she needs to be aware of. And the miscarriage rate is higher, particularly for the complicated heart um, diseases that Dr. Dr. Young just mentioned. And then, you know, growth restriction abnormalities can be a little bit more common where babies are growing smaller than expected. They may have to be delivered prematurely, um, and those can carry some, you know, kind of increased neonatal complication risks as well. So is it something that you mostly need to be concerned about if, if your parent, like I was also thinking like 
you know, as far as I know, my husband and I don't have a defect, but if my parents or my in-laws would have, you know, like, is it something that every generation will have to be concerned about? The closest risk is going to be a first degree relative of the baby. So a mom and a dad or a sibling of the baby. So that is generally, you know, you you do want to take a genetic history that goes back three levels. um, But the, the highest risk is going to be kind of those more immediate family members. So Dr. Durs, what typically happens um, when a CHD mom is, is referred to you? Like, how does the whole process start? And like Dr. Young said, he, he likes to refer people um, before actual pregnancy to, to have those conversations and planning, which I think is great. And I'm glad that I'm learning that right now, because I think that's an important thing for me to pass on to my daughter, but what typically happens? Yeah. So I will also, um, I will also second that I absolutely love to see patients preconception. So it is, um, it is probably the less stressful way to see people with congenital heart disease. And it gives us a lot of time to, you know, review what the history has been and thoughtfully discuss kind of what are the next steps, you know, if you get pregnant, here's what you can expect you know, with your pregnancy course and your labor and delivery. Um, And it also gives us an opportunity to talk about alternative forms of family building if pregnancy is really not in the patient's best interest. So things like gestational carriers, surrogacy, or adoption. Um, But when patients come to see us, what we really like to do is review what the congenital heart issue is. Um, We like to review any kind of surgical records, previous cardiology records, and we like to make sure that people are up to date on, you know, certain kind of imaging studies um, like heart ultrasounds, EKGs. Um, We like to see if they've had any kind of stress testing or if they need stress testing. Again, um, oftentimes if we can do that before pregnancy, that's ideal. Um, and then we go through kind of what to expect with that particular cardiac abnormality. You know, how frequently are we going to see the patient? What kind of fetal imaging are we going to recommend? Do we need to get genetics involved? Mm -hmm. What other specialists do we need throughout the pregnancy? And one of the, you know, big things that we need throughout the pregnancy, particularly around the time of delivery is anesthesia. So a lot of times we talk to them about, you know, maybe they've had this idea that they want to kind of have an all natural childbirth. Um, and we talked to them about, you know, what the stress of labor and delivery might, um, have on the impact of their, of their heart condition. And, you know, maybe we need to kind of reconsider having an epidural, um, and all okay. that the anesthesiologists are really, really important in terms of, you know, pregnancy management. And we often ask them to meet with our patients, you know, in the third trimester so that everybody has a clear understanding of how things are going to go when the patient shows up for labor and delivery. Okay. So do you typically, um, you know, it's not something, are you there during delivery? Are you the one that typically delivers or are you just kind of referred to outside of the regular OB? Very rarely. I would say that when we have those cases where, you know, people have a severely um, severe high blood pressure in the the lungs, like pulmonary hypertension or have um, really significant heart failure, 
then oftentimes we will be present for the delivery. A lot of the other deliveries, we don't really need to be physically in the room for, as long as we've kind of clearly laid out a management plan that says, okay, it's fine for this patient to have a vaginal delivery, you know, maybe have her lay on her left side and, and we don't want her to push too long. You know, maybe she needs to have a little bit of assistance during that pushing stage where, you know, vacuum or forcep delivery might be used. That's called an assisted delivery. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, if we've laid that plan out and they're under the care of their obstetrician, a lot of times we don't necessarily need to be in the room, but the conditions that are really, really high risk, particularly around the time of delivery, we often are. So this has come a long way because I bet 30 years ago, this would not have been considered. Am I right, Dr. Young? Yeah, I think um, it certainly happened 30 years ago, not as often because we right. didn't have as many patients um, getting to this point. Uh, I do think the the thing that's changed a lot, even in, in the course of my career, was, was what was often kind of just a default to C-section. Um, when I was early in my, my career, just, okay, the patient's got a heart problem, we're going to do a C-section. Okay. Um, and what we've realized is the vast majority of these patients are going to do better if they have a vaginal delivery. Really? Okay. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and there, there are exceptions to that, but those exceptions are, are, are relatively few and the baby's going to do better in general if you, if you have a vaginal delivery. So, um, that's where I really depend on Dr. Durst and the OBs mm-hmm. to kind of help with that concept of assistance I saw you wince when she mentioned uh, forceps <laughs> deliveries and vacuum. I was thinking C-section all the way. I know. Yeah. We're C-section mamas. I'm like, we're both C-section yeah. moms. I'm like, just cut me open. That sounds terrible. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. That, it's definitely better. In most of the time, it is better if they can deliver vaginally. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, the blood loss is very, very different. And so, you know, if we're trying to keep people's kind of blood volume very stable, then, you know, and, and just surgical risks are a little bit higher right, right. in the section. But um, I would say there are some circumstances, you know, if somebody has really advanced stage heart failure, you know, we're probably not going to want them to Exactly. But, um, but many of the other moms with congenital heart disease are going to do better if we can get them to deliver vaginally. Okay. Dr. Durst, um, what would you say is the percentage of the patients that you see that are CHD patients? Are you seeing a lot? I mean, give us some hope as heart moms, especially of girls, like, you know, are you seeing this happen a lot or more often than you do? I do see a lot of moms with congenital heart disease, and I actually really like to see a lot of moms with heart disease. So I'm not sure if my numbers are a little skewed um, because they may be, you know, coming to me out of, you know, my personal preference. Um, About one person, just a little under 1% of pregnancies in the United States are in moms with some form of congenital heart disease. And I think there are about 4 million births per per year. So it is a good number of women who have some form of congenital heart disease. Um, and, and I don't know how many, you know, in my practice, I see, I would say, I see a fair number, probably some somewhere between at least one to three every couple of weeks. Um, but it kind of comes in waves. So it's a little bit hard for me to track, but a good number. And most of them are going to come through our office 
like I said, you know, it's very rare that an obstetrician is going to have somebody who's had congenital heart disease, particularly cardiac surgery history, um, and not refer them to us at some point throughout the pregnancy. Well, this has been really, I mean, I I know that there's a lot of moms that are probably listening that with little tiny baby girls at home that are very feeling very hopeful. I feel like our last two interviews with the last two doctors we've interviewed have been very hopeful for us as parents. And so we appreciate y'all giving us um, all this information. Is there anything, Dr. Durst, because um, Dr. Young has given us his kind of best piece of advice. We always ask everybody as our our last question before we wrap things up, because we are running out of time that... um, what would you like to, if there was one thing to put out there to a CHD family in your experience, what would it be? Your one pie in the sky quote. So I think, you know, I wasn't in the medical field 30 years ago, but um, I would say that I am very optimistic and hopeful about the outcomes that we are having in terms of both the maternal you know, ability to make it through the pregnancy healthy and the outcomes that we're able to have for, for babies. So I'm very optimistic about, you know, the majority of women with congenital heart disease having healthy and safe pregnancies. And I'm also very optimistic and and excited to have, you know, colleagues that specialize in this. And, you know, it's, it's been a real delight to to work here and work with Dr. Young too. Yeah. I can tell you that I am, um, I'm already kind of fast forwarding in my head and I can see where Harley's care is going to be continuing. I hope that to see the two of you in our near future, I think it'll be happening sooner rather than later. <laughs> so thank you so yes, much for, thank joining for joining us today. Thank you for doing this. Dr. Young, any, any last quotes from you? Cause we'll have you on again, you know, you're going to no, be your sure. regular guest. <laughs> no, you know, I, I would say that it, the, the one really important thing, and you kind of started to bring this up, every patient is different. Yeah. And you, you kind of mentioned, okay, my daughter has tetralogy of flow. And what does that mean? And, and no tetralogy patient is the, the same, same as another one. And, and how is their pulmonary valve working? How is their right ventricle squeezing? Those kind of things. My, my child has transposition of the great arteries. Well, what kind of surgery did they have? When, when did, how is their ventricular function? There's so much that goes into this that, that everything really has to be individualized. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, thinking important. about kind of starting to think about this early during the teen years um, is really important. And getting Dr. Durst and her team involved early is so important. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to make fun of them a little. I think the maternal fetal people are the most type A doctors in the hospital. Um, That's okay. We'll take it. I like those kind of people. I like it. They are so detail oriented and on the ball. And I get calls from them, you know, usually the day before they're seeing a patient and they're going through their schedule and they're preparing to see the patient. And what do you think of this? And and I've been so impressed with them. um, And I feel so lucky to have that group with us. It's really, and it's, and it's another thing that's different than 20 years ago where, yeah, you didn't quite have that kind of robust maternal fetal presence that we have now. That's great. What a great partnership between Excellent. the two departments. I'm happy to see those, the different departments crossing over. And I know that you are, you all work with lots of different departments and every patient is so different. So um, it's great to see these two combined. It gives hope for so many parents and and kids that, that have, you know, visions of being mommies and daddies in the future. So 
Thank you so much, Dr. Young and Dr. Durst. That was um, that was amazing. Very it was a different for the aspect future. of CHD that I think a lot of parents were really wondering about. I, I had somebody message me and ask if we were going to do an episode on that, and that makes me happy that we were able to fulfill those needs. And so I'm going to confess, I had absolutely never thought. I mean, I guess I had thought about it, but when you think they're still, you know. I guess when they're teenagers, I'm not as worried about it. But, you know, as Dr. Young yeah. pointed out. Teenagers do get pregnant. Yep, they sure do. Sure so, do. So, thank you for that information. It gives definitely a lot of families, including myself, hope. I might have a grandbaby one day. Oh, you might have like a dozen. I can't wait. And then you'll be the grandma that keeps them all. Day oh, everybody probably will be a good mom. I hope. I hope. If she's learning anything from me, I don't know. Anyway, um, we appreciate y'all listening to this episode. Please share your personal stories, whether you're a child with CHD that might be comfortable sharing um, or an adult with CHD. You can email us at nolahots at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at nolahots. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Pandora Music. Please make sure to share our podcast if you're out there listening, if you know any other Parents or grandparents or friends who have a child with CHD, um, you know, we love to share and help as many people as we can. And as a reminder, our um, the Henry Oakland Foundation Annual Heart Gala is coming up on March 18th. You can go on our website to get tickets, sponsor, donate, buy raffle tickets, any of the many things available to everyone, whether you can be there or not. You could still support the cause with the silent auction and raffles. Um, you can go to henryoaklandfoundation.org. But we would love to see as many of you there as possible. We're looking forward to the next episode. Don't forget, no judgment here. It's all about survival. Cheers. Cheers.